Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So, this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's the 29th of January 1936 and Margaret Viner is about to film her first scene in The Flying Doctor, a movie being made at the new National Studios at Pagewood, just south of Sydney. This is another of her life's little quirks of fate. She went all the way to England to get work in the pictures, but it's only by coming home that she's landed her first real screen role. What's more, The Flying Doctor is a prestige production meant for international release and it's being directed by the esteemed Miles Mander, a pioneering British filmmaker and well-known screen actor in his own right. In today's scene, Margaret's character, society lush Betty, is to lash out at her on-screen husband and toss a drink in his face. Margaret's role isn't big, but she plays it archly and the camera loves her. So, as it turns out, will The Flying Doctor's big star, imported American matinee idol Charles Farrell, who for the past decade has been one of Hollywood's most famous leading men. And Margaret and Charles's off-screen relationship, though very much off the record, will be another turning point in her life. I'm Michael Adams and this is the second and final part of the Forgotten Australia episode, Australia's First Supermodel. Margaret Viner arrived back in Sydney on Thursday the 12th of December 1935. Her plan was to stay for Christmas, New Year and January before sailing back to England in February. From the moment she arrived, Margaret was the talk of the town, besieged by retailers, newspapers and movie firms. The department store offer that she accepted first was to headline a David Jones fashion parade. Held the following Monday, hundreds of people turned out to get a glimpse of Margaret showing off her personal style and the latest trends. The publication she talked to at greatest length was Smith's Weekly. Once her cheekiest critic, now her biggest champion and recent employer, Smith's on the 21st of December ran a full-page interview complete with exclusive photo and pencil portraits of, quote, Australia's most glorious girl. Smith's really laid it on, claiming her two years abroad had, quote, resulted in a far better advertisement for Australia than all the annual jaunts of our premiers and prime ministers put together, and she has paid for it out of her own pocket. Where they'd once reckoned she was full of herself, now Smith's said, quote, she has come back completely unspoilt. World fame has not made any difference to Margaret Viner. 
But world fame had made a difference in at least one sense. She'd attracted the attention of director Miles Mander, who thought she'd be a great fit for The Flying Doctor, which was to cost £45,000 and be the most expensive and ambitious talkie yet attempted in Australia. Confusingly, despite the title, the movie was actually about a restless Aussie wanderer named Sandy who gets in all sorts of city and outback adventures while the Flying Doctor was merely a supporting character threaded through the story. Miles Manders stated goal was to make an Australian film for a worldwide audience. But just having a calculated mix of crowd-pleasing adventure, melodrama, comedy and tragedy in exotic Australian settings wasn't enough. That's why he cast Charles Farrell as Sandy. Though barely remembered today, the handsome and lanky American was at the time one of the biggest box office draws in the world, thanks to a dozen films that he made with Janet Gaynor during the late 1920s and early 1930s. Remarkably enough, given how it's been mangled in the decades since, Charles Farrell could also pull off a pretty decent Australian accent. Meanwhile, Miles Mander thought that having celebrated beauty Margaret Viner's name on the marquee and face on the posters couldn't hurt the film's chances where she was best known, in England, Europe and at home in Australia. It was ironic then that Margaret, even though she was playing an Australian, would be required by Miles Mander to deliver her lines in a clipped British accent. On the 8th of January 1936, Sydney's The Telegraph was first with the news that Margaret had been cast in The Flying Doctor and would be delaying her return to England. Margaret's role as Betty only required her to be on set for five days during the two-month shoot. For her work, as recorded in production memos held by the National Film and Sound Archive, she was to receive £100. That's the equivalent of about $10,000 today. Miles Mander got good value for the money though because even when she wasn't on set, Margaret would generate publicity for his movie simply by taking modelling assignments. Shortly after shooting her first scenes in late January, Margaret went to Brisbane and caused a sensation with her fashion parade appearances at the Hotel Carlton. Truth's gossip, Lady About Town, wrote on the 9th of February, quote, This week, undoubtedly, socially speaking, has been Viner's. All who are somebody, and many who aren't, have venerated at the altar of mode on which has officiated Margaret, the high priestess of fashion. Two weeks later, it was Melbourne's turn to bow down when she paraded at Myers, with the store even selling special Margaret Viner berets. Then Margaret flitted back to Sydney to spend a long day filming a nightclub scene in which the city's real social butterflies wore their own finery to appear as background dancing extras. Then she was off to South Australia for more Myers fashion shows. But when Margaret arrived in Adelaide on the 9th of March, she was met with terrible news. Jean Patou, the man who'd made her famous, who'd launched her career, was dead. The great man had come to a sad end. The Great Depression had taken its toll and his company had been insolvent since the previous year. Apparently hiding out from creditors in a Paris hotel, Patou had died of a stroke at the age of 49. Margaret told the Adelaide Advertiser that day, quote, There was no one like Patou. I believe his death will mean the end of one section of dressmaking. He had infinite courage with fashion designs. People would hold their breath while he combined colours which seemed impossible. The result? It would be perfect. Side note, while Patu had been a -a one-of-a-kind and though he died in poverty, his name lived on with the house of Patu surviving and its designers would go on to include Karl Lagerfeld in the 1960s, Jean-Paul Gaultier in the 1970s and Christian Lacroix in the 1980s and the House of Patu's models would one day include Margaret's very own daughter. Back in Sydney in March 1936, as filming on The Flying Doctor continued, the off-screen chemistry between Margaret and the rather-married Charles Farrell had become increasingly obvious. They'd been out frequently, on a Sydney Harbour cruise, to an A-list theatrical premiere, and to clubs and dinner. 
and they were even both to sail from Sydney to Los Angeles on the 1st of April aboard the Monterey. But the day after the Flying Doctor's rap party on the 30th of March, Charles announced he was staying in Sydney for a while longer. Coincidentally, Margaret also announced that she delayed her voyage to America. Over the next month, they were inseparable, noted and photographed together at the races, nightclubs and charity balls. Rumours were so widespread that Margaret felt the need to make a public denial on Smith's Weekly's front page on the 25th of April 1936. Under the headline, Millionaires, Rolls Royces and Titles, Romances in the Life of Margaret Viner, she gave what was claimed to be a frank interview in which she admitted, yes, she'd been chased by the handsome, the high and the mighty, both in Australia and overseas, but that she wasn't interested in marriage when she had so much to achieve in terms of her career. As for any romance with her flying Dr. Co-star, she said, quote, Charles Farrell is one of the nicest, most considerate and natural men I have ever met, and I admire him. But surely everyone knows that Charles is married to a most charming lady. Our friendship is purely platonic. Charles Farrell's wife was Virginia Valley, a former silent film star who he'd married in 1931 after he was rejected by Janet Gaynor on account of his philandering and reckless ways. But even as Smith's published Margaret's denial of any romance, it felt compelled to note, quote, It is true that for the greater part of her trip to America on the Mariposa, Miss Viner will have, as a fellow passenger, Charles Farrell, celebrated film star, but she stoutly denies that Charles and she are anything more than pals. Margaret had no choice but to deny an affair with a married man, as just about any celebrity still would today. On the 29th of April 1936, Margaret sailed from Sydney on the Mariposa, farewelled by her mother and father, who didn't speak to each other on account of his infidelities. Where Margaret's goal two years earlier had been to get work in films in England, this time her plans were a little hazier, with talk of trying out for Hollywood, doing some buying for Australian department stores and modelling in the US before resuming her modelling career in England and Europe, as well as again writing for Smith's Weekly. What Margaret was certain about though was that she'd be seeing Charles Farrell again, He joined the Mariposa in New Zealand and they travelled together to Hawaii. There, he reunited with his wife, Virginia Valley, for a week's holiday while Margaret continued on to Los Angeles where her arrival was announced in the Los Angeles Times on the 17th of May under the headline Mannequin and Buyer for Women's Shops Arrives on Tour Around World. The Times item began, quote, Proof that Australia's mannequins are as comely as those of Hollywood or Fifth Avenue was offered yesterday in the person of Miss Margaret Viner, who arrived from Sydney aboard the Matson Oceanic liner Mariposa. How much time Margaret spent with Charles Farrell in Hollywood isn't known. During the six weeks she was there, she met and socialised with the likes of Bing Crosby, Robert Montgomery, Joan Crawford, Robert Taylor, Barbara Stanwyck and a young up-and-comer named Jimmy Stewart. It wasn't all play though. She did a screen test with Universal whose casting boss, she said, reckoned her voice was too English but offered her a contract anyway. Margaret turned it down, claiming, quote, I felt that Hollywood was not a good place to start in films unless one had a name. The best entree to Hollywood, I thought, and in this my friends concurred, was via London. London also held another attraction. Charles Farrell was heading there. According to Lucky Stars, the dual Charles Farrell-Janet Gaynor biography by Sarah Baker, soon after he returned to Hollywood from Australia, he asked his wife for a divorce. Virginia Valley refused, and so he headed to London, where he'd made films before. Passenger manifests found at Ancestry.com.au record Charles sailed from New York aboard the liner Normandy on the 1st of July and arrived at Southampton on the 6th. Margaret went two weeks later on the liner Georgic and arrived on the 19th of July. No sooner was she off the boat than she got a telegram from designer Norman Hartnell. 
As she wrote for Smith's Weekly, quote, He was preparing his collection for Paris, the first show to be held by an Englishman in the fashion capital, and I had the honour of being his principal mannequin. The show was a success, but Margaret's visit to Paris was tinged with sadness when she visited Patou's salon. Back in London, Margaret kept modelling for Hartnell, whose Royal Association had continued, and she also tried out for film work. In early October 1936, she scored the leading female role in a film called Sensation, which was about a group of journalists who specialised in murder cases. Terribly thrilled, she said in a telegram to her mother. Speaking to a representative of Sydney's The Sun newspaper on the 13th of October, she said, quote, Some people are kind enough to call me a new film star, but I am a long way from that. I'm trying hard to shine just a little. Margaret wasn't being modest. While being female lead in Sensation looked good on the posters, in reality, her role as American actor John Lodge's girlfriend meant she only appeared in a handful of scenes. With Charles Farrell in London shooting a musical drama called Moonlight Sonata, rumours of a romance persisted back in Sydney newspapers, though there was also speculation Margaret was seeing the ninth Earl of Jersey. This time Margaret sought out a British United Press reporter to deny romances with either man. Sydney's Truth picked up the story, running it on its front page on the 22nd of November under the multi-deck headline that said it all, quote, Margaret Viner and Marriage tells Truth her feelings for an Earl and actor. Quote, we are just friends. Her ambition is to make big name. In the interview, both men, Margaret said, were just pals who'd helped her out a lot. But it didn't dispel speculation about her romantic life when Margaret was next cast opposite Charles Farrell in Midnight Menace, a film that had seen release under the more accurate title Bombs Over London. Another quickie thriller, this was better made than sensation and more interesting for depicting what would soon be reality, a nighttime aerial bombing blitz against London. In the film, Margaret again played a girlfriend, this time to Charles Farrell's crusading political cartoonist, but she had more to do and did it more naturally. At Christmas 1936, a despondent Charles Farrell was in Paris where he was spotted by a variety reporter. The resulting article was headlined, Who Is She? And the item read in part, quote, Charles Farrell has announced here that he has lost all interest in the pick biz. I don't think I'll go on playing in picks, he said. I love travelling too much and I hate studios. Too many selfish, cold-blooded women who think of nothing but personal glory and for whom nothing counts, not even love. While Charles and Margaret completed Bombs Over London, the pair wouldn't again be romantically linked. So, did they really have an affair? Margaret's family have confirmed to me that they did, and what's more, they'd wanted to get married. In April 1937, Margaret's Bombs Over London director, Sinclair Hill, was quoted in Australian Women's Weekly as saying she was the answer to every British producer's prayers for a leading lady. Quote, We have hundreds of them, but usually if they're pretty, they're stupid. If they're clever, they're plain. Margaret's just right. Not everyone agreed with that. When her first British film, Sensation, was released down under, the great Australian poet, Kenneth Slessor, whose day jobs then included being Smith's Weekly's film editor, reviewed her, quote, Miss Viner is beautiful and wears clothes to perfection, but we are afraid she can't act. Her movements are stereotyped and her voice lacks elasticity and conviction. She seems afraid to allow any expression of emotion to cross her face. Perhaps the director is to blame. British movie producers and critics disagreed and Margaret worked continually in film in 1937. She was next the female lead in Paramount's thriller Cavalier of the Streets about a writer who switches identities with a dead man. A critic for London's The Era newspaper said, quote, Margaret Viner gives a skilled performance. She impresses in both beauty and ability. 
If Margaret knew how she'd been reviewed in the pages of Smith's Weekly, she didn't seem to care because she again agreed to write a column about her experiences in London. In one column, she wrote about the making of her next film, Sailing Along. She said she'd realised to be a successful actress meant working hard at the craft, and she explained that in this film her supporting role was a menace to sweet leading lady Jessie Matthews, but that was okay because such villainous women usually got to wear much more beautiful gowns. Margaret's articles for Smith's detailed her nights out, including one with film star Robert Taylor that led to newspaper speculation of a romance. In another article about a big London party, she again made it clear that she was still a teetotaler who stuck to, quote, tomato juice au naturel, although she conceded to trying snuff, which wasn't to her liking. Then in Smith's, she announced what she called a tremendous Christmas present, an offer to appear on Broadway in New York in a new comedy called Half a Loaf by playwright Frederick Lonsdale. Margaret was to be part of an ensemble led by then-famous actress Ina Clare, which she wrote to Smith was, quote, an honour that any young stage aspirant would give a ransom to receive. Margaret was to sail from Southampton on New Year's Eve and begin rehearsals almost immediately upon arriving in New York City. Her last two weeks in England, as chronicled in Smith's, would comprise a frantic rush to finish work as female lead in her latest British picture, the thriller Incident in Shanghai, and then a round of hasty farewells with her wide circle of friends and colleagues. During these goodbyes, Margaret, as she described it, broke my temperance rule by having a few sips of champagne. Having made five films in the past 18 months, Margaret was proud of how far she'd come, though she wrote to Smith to say that she hoped to learn much more about acting from her Broadway experience. But it wasn't what would happen in New York that would shape her life. It was what happened getting there. Margaret and other members of the cast set off on the ocean liner Washington on the 31st of December 1937. As it was New Year's Eve, the passengers all had a big party. Margaret recalled it was a superficially happy affair because while previous New Year's Eve celebrations had been with family and friends, this time she was surrounded by people she'd only met a few hours earlier. Then everything changed. That's because the cast members aboard included none other than Hugh Williams, the handsome British actor she'd seen on stage in Sydney a decade ago. Seeing her at a table with her teetotaler's choice of drink that night, milk, he sent a note that read, quote, Champagne better than milk, join me. Margaret did. She later recalled their meeting to the Australian Women's Weekly, quote, I thought he was the rudest man I had met for a long time. Hugh wore his hat all the time, didn't take it off when introduced, so we had a row straight away. But I lost that battle, for Hugh's hat was protecting a nasty cut on his head. We made it up over a champagne cocktail in the bar, and that's where I fell in love with him. What complicated matters was that Hugh was still married to Gwyn Whitby, mother of his two children, though the couple had been living apart for six years. For the rest of the voyage, Hugh, whose nickname was Tam, courted Margaret, and when they arrived in New York, he convinced her to book into the Gotham Hotel, where he was staying. On the 8th of January 1938, they became lovers, a date they'd celebrate for the next 30 years. While Margaret was in New York rehearsing her first Broadway play opposite the man who'd become her husband, her own parents' marriage was coming to a bitter legal end in Sydney with details of her father's infidelity, including adulterous letters, splashed all over the newspapers. Keeping her own love affair with her co-star Hugh Williams on the QT, Margaret wrote to Smith's of the cast's first big rehearsal, quote, 
Honestly, it was the most terrifying experience I have ever lived through. Footlights blazing, stage fully set, and out there in the auditorium, blank emptiness with the exception of those awesome people in the front row who, to make matters worse, keep taking notes all through the play. And the play was now to be called not Half a Loaf, but Once is Enough, which led nervous Margaret to drolly observe, quote, Personally, I think both titles are bad, especially the latter, which, in the event of the play being a flop, might evoke some sarcasm from critics. But Margaret needn't have worried. The play opened first in New Haven, where it was well-received as a frothy sex comedy with a distinctly European take on adultery. And the good reviews continued in Pittsburgh, Washington, and finally, Broadway. Once is Enough had a 10-week run, after which Margaret and Tam returned to London, though their relationship was kept out of the newspapers. Margaret resumed modelling, was seen out on the social scene, photographed by magazines like The Era, The Tatler and The Bystander. Her appearance at a swanky party and fashion parade at Claridge's Hotel in December 1938 saw her draped with £500,000 worth of diamonds. This glittering moment captured in the same cine sound review that showed Jews fleeing Germany in the wake of Kristallnacht. Margaret did theatrical work with a repertory company in Liverpool and made the film Climbing High, again with musical star Jesse Matthews and also with Michael Redgrave. And in April 1939, Margaret was entrusted with a very royal responsibility. That was to go to Canada and act as Norman Hartnell's representative, supervising the wardrobe the Queen was going to wear during her royal visit. On the back of this, Margaret would also take royal frocks across America as a kind of unofficial ambassador for British fashion. In 1938 and early 1939, Hugh Williams was at his busiest, in more demand than ever before, with lead or supporting roles in eight movies. There were British productions such as thriller Dead Men Tell No Tales and comedy Bank Holiday. But most notably, he went to Hollywood to play Hindley in Wuthering Heights with Merle Oberon, Laurence Olivier and David Niven. Returning home, Hugh took the good guy role opposite Bella Lugosi in London set horror The Human Monster, aka The Dark Eyes of London. As busy as he was, and Hugh was also doing stage work, he was worried by darkening war clouds in Europe. Mindful of doing his bit and worried he might be considered a bit of a louse if he didn't, in April 1939, Hugh enlisted, even though at age 35, he didn't have to. Hugh Williams was now not just a star of stage and screen, but also a private in the Queen's Westminsters, an infantry regiment in the Territorial Army, which is the British equivalent of the Army Reserve. At the end of August 1939, with war imminent, Margaret, like thousands of female Australian expats, volunteered to do her bit in the auxiliary services. Her role was as an evacuation coordinator, with England fearing that war with Germany would result in an immediate bombing attack on London that would in the first week kill or injure as many as 150,000 people. On the night of the 2nd of September, Margaret was with Hugh at London's Queen's Theatre after a performance of Dear Octopus, a comedy about family life. Germany had invaded Poland and Hitler now had to meet England's demand for withdrawal. If he didn't, there'd be war. Hugh's dressing room became a hub of worried people trying to calm their nerves with a drink or two. And he had to be as worried as any of them because yesterday he'd been called up from the reserves to the regular army. The next morning, Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain declared war on Germany. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There was no bombing raid with mass casualties, at least not then, and what began was a period known as the Phony War, in which England and Germany avoided major military engagements. Even so, Hugh was now in the army full-time, and he was initially housed in a barracks at, of all things, a film studio, along with two similarly enlisted actor mates. As Margaret and Hugh's separation continued, their correspondence, which had begun with that cheeky note inviting her for champagne on New Year's Eve, would grow during the war to comprise hundreds of letters. We're lucky to have access to them, as they were collected and published by Kate Dunn, Hugh's granddaughter from his marriage to Gwyn Whitby, in a 1995 book called Always and Always, which was how they'd sometimes sign off to each other. London, 16th of October, 1939, Margaret to Hugh. Quote, Oh my darling, what absolute dejection and utter misery it is here without you. I love you so much and miss you so much. Hugh did army training at Aldershot for months, cold and bored by endless theory and drill. There was more dreariness at Bexel on Sea. Hugh to Margaret, 3rd of January, 1940. Quote, My dear, my darling Margaret, I want to be with you and live somewhere warm with you, and if this bloody war is going to go lingering, then I'm going to get terribly impatient. Though they were separated most of the time, they were determined to be together in one sense, and with his divorce from Gwyn finalised and amicable, Margaret and Hugh announced their engagement. At this time, Margaret's mother Ruby came to London to live with her. For Margaret and Hugh, their impending marriage didn't mean their relationship was all hearts and flowers. Hugh was furious and unafraid to say so in a letter on the 17th of May after she'd been out at the time they'd agreed he'd phone her. And she could be equally fiery, shooting back a telegram after another argument that read, quote, suggest you order ring, stop sulking and be ready on the 21st, stop, I love you, stop. Margaret Viner and Hugh Williams were married on the 21st of June 1940 at a London registry office, followed by a service in the church of St. Ethelberger in Bishopgate before guests attended a garden party at a friend's home in Chelsea. It was a brilliant sunny day, but the mood in Britain by this time had truly darkened. The phony war was over. The British army had narrowly escaped total destruction at Dunkirk and the Battle of Britain would soon commence. As a soldier on the home front, Tam had plenty of time to worry and resent, which he set down in a letter on the 12th of July 1940, which he said was the most intimate he'd ever written. In the letter, he confessed that he hated Margaret doing modelling photos to earn the money she so badly needed. Not long ago, he'd pocketed £80 a week for stage work, and now he griped that it would take him five months to earn that amount. He hated that he couldn't provide for Margaret, for her mother, for his ex-wife Gwyn, his daughters Prue and Lou, and for his own mother. As 1940 progressed, the letters reflected the worsening of the war. Hugh asked Margaret if she had a gas mask yet and worried about the air raids of the Blitz. She told him she left London every night to avoid the Nazi bombs and the noise of English anti-aircraft guns, and that she was doing more photographic work and had landed a role in a short film. In their letters, they both regularly lamented how much they longed to be together so they could open a bottle or two of champagne and spend an afternoon making love. For a while, Margaret and Hugh got their wish because in 1941 he was given leave from the army to star in morale-boosting war movies made to help England keep calm and carry on. Among the films were The Day Will Dawn, in which he saw screen action against the Nazis in Norway, and Secret Mission, where he was a British spy in France playing opposite James Mason. But the most famous and best of these films was called One of Our Aircraft is Missing, with Hugh, a member of an RAF bomber crew, forced to bail out over the Nazi-occupied Netherlands. 
Meanwhile, Margaret scored the second female lead in This Man is Dangerous. With James Mason in the lead, this thriller was met with huge acclaim on release, only to become a lost film for decades until it was rediscovered and screened by the British Film Institute in 2017. During this break from the army, Margaret and Tam also conceived their first child, and son Hugo Williams was born in February 1942. Five months later, Hugh was back with the Devonshire Regiment while Margaret had a bit part in historical drama The Young Mr Pitt. In one letter around this time, Tam unsubtly worried that Margaret might be interested in James Mason. Such jealousies were common among soldiers away from their wives and girlfriends, but for Tam, the concern had to be magnified because the woman he'd left behind was one of the era's great beauties, and her friends and workmates were considered some of the most handsome and charming men in the world. Replying to her husband, Margaret reassured him that James Mason was, quote, a little wet, and besides, she was happily married. Later, when Margaret saw Secret Mission, she wrote to Tam to tell him how excellent and handsome he was while mocking James Mason's accents and mannerisms that she said made his character seem like a Maori Jewish Frenchman. In other later letters, Hugh would demand to know if Margaret was having an affair and he'd be unconvinced by her reassurances. From late 1942, Tam had more substantive war work to do when he was made part of the Phantom Intelligence Unit, whose job was to establish direct communications between forward Allied forces and headquarters. In early 1943, he was sent with Phantom Unit to North Africa. From then on, his letters came from Tunisia, then Sicily, and then France. Finally, in 1945, Hugh was in Germany where he witnessed firsthand the destruction that Allied saturation bombing had wrought on the country. 23rd of March, 1945, Germany. Quote, My darling, I saw Cologne the other day, which needs seeing to believe and filled me with the most profound and utter misery. I've seen many villages and small towns reduced to dusty rubble, but nothing on the scale of Cologne, which was once home of a million people. I saw nothing that looked habitable, nothing. He continued saying of the war, The thing has gone too far and it is sickening and horrible and godless. Pray God it ends soon. But any sympathy Hugh felt for the Germans was extinguished when, on the 29th of April 1945, he went to the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp where some 50,000 people had been killed. The camp had been liberated two weeks earlier, but the horrors were still everywhere. On the 30th of April, he wrote to Margaret of the Germans, quote, Bastards, I loathe them. He then went on to describe some of what he'd seen. Quote, the burials are now under some kind of control. The only dead one saw were those who had just collapsed hideous and emaciated. I walked down one road and coming back a few minutes later, there were two who had not been there before. No one paid attention to them. They might have been a couple of fish lying on the bank of a stream. The death rate is something like 400 a day, starvation mostly. The filth is indescribable, and I did not venture inside the huts, which must be far worse. He continued, It was not quite like the zoo and not like a lunatic asylum, but it had diabolical elements of both. I am quite certain I saw many, very many, who were mad. He finished with, it couldn't have been kept secret by the SS or the Nazis from the rest of Germany. More, but not of this, later. My love, for always and always, Tam. Margaret and Hugh's correspondence made clear their hopes they'd both be able to resume their careers after the war. But that was easier said than done. Post-war London was a place of destruction and privation and people on rations weren't exactly rushing out to buy designer frocks, so the modelling business was slow. Similarly, screen and stage production were slow to recover. While their careers had been going strong in 1939, that had been six long years ago now and they'd both only sporadically been in the public eye since then. Now, also, they didn't just have son Hugo to care for, but also his little brother Simon, who was born in June 1946. 
Hugh did get some film work, seven roles in the next four years, and Margaret was reportedly occasionally modelling for Vogue magazine. When a correspondent from Melbourne's The Herald caught up with her in London for an article published on the 2nd of June 1947, she'd just rushed up from where they were living in Buckinghamshire, where she'd spent the morning doing spring cleaning and looking after their sons. The reporter said Margaret looked great, as slender, beautiful and fashionable as ever, but that she also spoke wistfully of Australia, of sunlight, of fruit, and that she and Hugh had vague plans to return and put on plays. But more pressing at that moment was furnishing her home and trying to put the next meal on the table. Margaret said she'd go from town to town, one eye out for furniture, the other on the lookout for good tomatoes, apples or offal. And in 1950, she and Hugh had another mouth to feed with the birth of daughter Polly. By then, the family's finances were suffering and they were moving frequently. But the Williamses could still put a good face on things. In late summer 1949, Margaret and Hugh went on holiday to the south of France, though she noted in a letter how much everything cost. And she looked radiant in April 1950, wearing a garland of flowers with her gunmetal slipper satin gown at the London premiere of a play in which Hugh was starring. Then they were off to New York, where Hugh was playing on Broadway in T.S. Eliot's The Cocktail Party. But money remained a concern. A 25th of October 1950 Sydney Morning Herald article quoted a letter Margaret wrote to her mother Ruby, who was minding the children, in which she said New York was, quote, gay, fantastic, but oh so expensive. There really wasn't any money left, and the following month, while still working in New York, Hugh was declared bankrupt. For Margaret, it must have been a horrible echo of what had happened to her father when she was 14. Hugh told London Bankruptcy Court that he had at one time spent £12,000 a year, even though his income at that time had only been £6,000 annually. He said he owed about £15,000, including nearly £10,000 in tax, and admitted he'd been in debt since he and Margaret were married back in 1940. He blamed his situation on overspending, being hit with old tax bills, paying for his wife and three children, and his mother-in-law, paying for his former wife and her two daughters. In September 1951, Margaret and Hugh were reported by Sydney's Telegraph to have moved into a large flat at Cobham Hall, Cobham, which the newspaper called, quote, one of the loveliest old homes in Kent. But Simon Williams, their son, remembers it well and told me it was a cold, draughty flat that was reached by climbing 100 stairs. Still, he says, they always had a cook or nanny and Margaret's mother Ruby who lived with them to help out. And Hugh was able to borrow money so that Hugo and Simon could go to boarding school. On the 3rd of June 1953, Margaret and Hugh also managed to go to the Coronation Ball for Queen Elizabeth II at London's Savoy Hotel, with her looking timelessly beautiful, though now nearly 40, in colour photos published in the Australian Women's Weekly. Though Hugh still got film roles, Margaret had all but retired and money was always tight. She, in the end, was the one who came up with the solution. Their son Simon told me that Hugh was one day sitting and staring out a window in their miserable Cobham Hall flat when she came to him and demanded, quote, write a play, write a play. That's what he did with her help. Though they would be co-credited on their work, Simon tells me that Hugh did most of the writing and structure while Margaret typed and tossed in ideas. Their first effort was a light drawing room comedy called Plaintiff in a Pretty Hat. Speaking to the Sydney Morning Herald on the 25th of November 1956, Margaret said, quote, Tam and I really talked it out rather than wrote it. We argued out situations and tried dialogue out aloud for hours. However they wrote it, Plaintiff in a Pretty Hat, which of course had a starring role for Hugh, was already by then a hit, having premiered a month earlier at the Duchess Theatre in London. With the money it made them, they could move to a far nicer rural home called Goss's Farm on an estate in Sussex owned by then Prime Minister Harold Macmillan. Hugh and Margaret kept on collaborating. The next play, The Happy Man, which also starred Hugh, premiered in late 1957. Their biggest hit, The Grass is Greener, followed a year later and would play 500 times at the St Martin's Theatre. 
Film star Cary Grant bought the rights for a movie adaptation in which he would star alongside Robert Mitchum, Deborah Carr and Gene Simmons. Those rights alone, depending on the newspaper report you read, ran to either high five or low six figures. While the 1950s had started with bankruptcy and stalled careers, the decade ended with Margaret and Hugh Williams enjoying new leases on life. There'd be more hits in the next decade, including The Irregular Verb to Love and musical comedy Charlie Girl, and at one time three of their plays were in production at the same time on the West End. Things weren't all rosy though, with Simon remembering his father as a somewhat sombre figure whose doer moods suppressed his mother's natural energy and brought down the household. During the 1960s, Margaret and Hugh's children all began to blossom. Hugo had his first book of poetry published, Simon took up acting, and Polly became a Patou model in Paris. In the mid-1960s, Margaret and Hugh moved to Albufeira in Portugal. On the 2nd of December 1969, the night before Margaret's 55th birthday, their latest co-credited play called, fittingly enough, His, Hers and Theirs, opened with Hugh in the lead and son Simon and his wife Belinda Carroll in supporting roles at London's Apollo Theatre. Five days later, Hugh died, aged 65. After her husband's death, Margaret retired from public life, turning down, Simon told me, an offer to return to Australia to host her own television talk show. Instead, she stayed in Portugal and remarried an Englishman named Jack Clayton, though the relationship fizzled quickly, even if legal complications meant they could never get a divorce. After Jack, Margaret hooked up with a Portuguese aristocrat who, Simon tells me, adored her even though she treated him horridly. Margaret lived in a beautiful three-storey 1930s-style home with beach views. Through her late 50s, her 60s and into her 70s, Margaret was still having great decades. Timelessly beautiful, dressed in fine clothes, adorned with gold jewellery, a cigarette and glass of wine never far away, she was the life of any party. Her children and grandchildren would visit her, and her grandson Tam Williams, named for his grandfather, told me at great and affectionate length of the summer holidays he spent there with Margaret in the 1970s and 1980s. Whenever he flew to see her, he'd take her Toblerones and a bottle of Gavanchi Yattis, whose fragrance instantly conjures her presence for him to this day. In the mornings, he'd go shopping for her. She'd ease into the day by reading the Daily Mail for gossip, doing its crossword very quickly, having a laugh at Fred Bassett and playing Patience. In the afternoon, they'd have a beach picnic. Then he'd accompany her to a bar or party, or they'd just remain at home staying up late with whatever other family or friends were around. Given that Tam did this from about age eight, these were unusual summer holidays for a child, and he loved every moment of them. Margaret, he says, didn't speak much about the past, living very much in the present, and she was a favourite of people half or even a third her age for how cool and funny she remained right into her old age. She retained, both her son and grandson say, the ability to weave magic around people, to make anyone instantly feel at ease in her company. Tam and Simon and the rest of the family would be hugely amused by this elegant figure speaking the Portuguese she'd learned from her maid, a glottal lower-class version of the language that caused jaws to drop when she'd unleash it at some sophisticated locals' party. But why Margaret never returned to Australia mystifies Simon and Tam, though they feel she might have felt a bit too swanky going back after all these years. Margaret threatened to write her memoirs, but never did. As her son Hugo Williams wrote in the Times Literary Supplement in 1991, quote, her white cat sits on her portable Olivetti to keep herself cool and prevent her from doing anything they might both regret. Inspired by Hugo's articles about Margaret in the Times, a Sydney Morning Herald writer phoned her in Portugal. In the resulting 27th of September 1991 article headlined Sydney's Margaret Viner, still the top, 60 years on, reporter Valerie Lawson asked about those Cole Porter lyrics. 
Margaret's response was cryptic. Quote, That's a very nice story. The bulk of the article recounted her accomplishments and adventures. But during their conversation, Margaret told the reporter she was considering selling up and moving back to England because, quote, the house is too big for me. Asked what it had been like to live 77 years behind such a beautiful face, Margaret's reply was frank and funny. Quote, these days it takes longer to get up in the morning. You don't want to frighten the horses. It's still vanity. Margaret Viner did return to England, where she died on the 30th of October 1993 at the age of 78, the cigarettes finally having caught up with her in the form of emphysema. A line from the Independence obituary said it all, quote, Always slim, elegant and funny, she remained an enchantress until her final days. An enchantress whose legacy, co-credited with her husband Hugh, has been the lives of her children and grandchildren, who've all followed creative pursuits. Margaret and Hugh's daughter Polly enjoyed a career as an actress and model, and married actor Nigel Havers, who's best known for Chariots of Fire. Sadly, Polly passed away from ovarian cancer in 2004 at the age of 54. Hugo Williams has for decades been one of England's most celebrated poets, much of his work reflecting on his difficult relationship with his father, adoration of his mother and his own complicated personal life. Hugo married a French actress, singer and tightrope walker and their daughter Murphy is a writer and culinary entrepreneur. Simon Williams has had a long and successful career as an actor, best known to Australian audiences for Upstairs Downstairs, and Tam and Amy, his children from his first marriage, are also actors. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. I'd like to thank Simon and Tam Williams for their kind help in making this episode possible and for granting permission to read excerpts from Margaret and Tam's letters as collected by Kate Dunn for the book Always and Always. I first encountered Margaret Viner while researching the life of Mary Maguire, the young Australian actress who took the female leading role in The Flying Doctor. Like Margaret Viner, Mary Maguire went to Hollywood and then to London, but her life was far more tragic. You can read all about Mary Maguire in my book, Australia's Sweetheart. Go to ForgottenAustralia.com for an excerpt, photos and more information. And while you're there, you can learn more about every episode of Forgotten Australia. If you've enjoyed the show, please help it reach other people by leaving a review or rating at iTunes and by telling a friend or two. Forgotten Australia was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.